Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. Whenever I feature my favorite paranormal stories, I feel the need to double up on the exposition, perhaps as a way to prop up the topic as important or compelling for the layperson that's new to it. It's not about exaggeration, and hopefully it's not disingenuine. It's more so about telling the story in a way that highlights the facts and makes the entirety sound a bit more interesting and, I suppose, a bit more believable. In tonight's story... I don't need to give that much thought at all. The UFO event I'll be discussing is a sort of undefeated champion of unexplained phenomenon. For over 50 years, a revolving door of civilian and government investigators have attempted to provide an explanation for this mystery. Yet, this UFO event remains an enigma. What is known is that in 1967, just months prior to the other famous Canadian UFO event in Shag Harbor, a man stumbled out of the woods in rural Manitoba, disoriented, vomiting, and badly burned. This wasn't the story of a bonfire gone wrong, and it had nothing to do with alcohol. The story this man told, and the one he maintained until his death in 99, was that he encountered a UFO and got burned in the process. Tonight, in this episode of Nighttime, our topic is Stefan Mahalik and the 1967 Falcon Lake UFO incident. Does anybody ever come back with, with the marks of having been on one of these uh, Oh, very definitely. Or? Right here in Manitoba, we have one of the finest cases uh, on record. It's a very interesting case. Uh, it uh, took place at Falcon Lake. This was back in 67, and the gentleman involved, Michelock, he had stopped for lunch, and he saw these bright lights. He looked up. As he was looking, one of them came down, one flew off. And as he uh, looked at this thing, a hatch opened up. As he stepped back from viewing this thing, uh, the thing tilted, started swinging around in a counterclockwise direction, bringing some vent holes in front of him, hit him in the chest, knocked him down, and this thing took off. To dig into the strange story of the Falcon Lake UFO incident, I reached out to Chris Rutkowski, a past guest of Nighttime. The Falcon Lake story is one Chris knows well. As a child, Chris lived just down the road from the man at the center of the story, Stefan Mahalik. And later in life, Chris would find himself co-writing the definitive book on the case with the witness's son. So let's dive in. In the upcoming conversation, Chris Rutkowski shares details of the Falcon Lake event, and in doing so, explains why this event has remained such a major part of Canada's UFO story. Tell me a bit about the role the Falcon Lake UFO event has played in your history and, you know, the UFO world. Well, you know, it's, it actually happened before I started uh, investigating. It happened in 67. I started getting into UFOs in the 70s. But uh, it's certainly because it's so well known. Um, you know, when everybody 
comes to talk with me about uh, Manitoba UFOs. It's certainly the case that comes up. Um, and yet, you know, over the course of uh, uh, 40 or more years, I mean, I've investigated literally thousands of, of cases, and there's some really fascinating uh, cases out there. But it's the one that seems to draw the most attention because it has all those qualities that you really want in a UFO case. I mean, you've got a witness who is physically uh, injured. You've got uh, markings at a site. It was investigated by the RCMP and the Air Force. Uh, there was radiation found. I mean, there's, has, you know, and all the documents are available. So you, you know, you've got everything that you would possibly want from from one particular UFO case. Mm-hmm. And I guess the idea of it, the in this event not going away and staying kind of current and and of so much interest for people, that certainly hasn't changed. And even recently, like you, you co-wrote a book with the witness's son that has kind of you know, brought the story back to the forefront again. Tell me how that how the book came together. Like, what led to you partnering, basically, with the witness's family to tell this story? Well, it actually uh, was completely by happenstance that uh, I uh, grew up living on the same street as, uh, as the family, and I actually knew uh, the witness's son, in fact, about the same age, and we hung around with each other. And I have this vague recollection back in the the 60s of uh, going over to his home one time to to want to ride a bike with him and you know let's go off doing something and he said oh, I can't my dad was hurt somewhere out in the forest and, and so I actually knew the family a, a little bit and uh, over the years they really became jaded uh, at all the investigators and uh, the media uh, who had literally shown up on their doorstep uh, and uh, demanding to hear the story. In fact, that's the that's where the title of the book comes from. The, the title of the book is When They Appeared, and it has nothing to do with aliens. It has to do with the incessant clamor of investigators, TV crews, interviewers, everybody who wanted to, to talk with them. I mean, the RCMP were frequent visitors, uh, Canadian Air Force uh, investigators were there on their doorstep. I mean, was, in fact, that back in the 60s, they were saying that uh, that uh, a newspaper uh, uh, photographers were there so often that they actually had to sweep the broken flash bulbs off their front steps because uh, they were just you know people were trying to get a photo of them so much. So it was certainly something that uh, you know was a, a lightning rod for people interested in flying saucers and UFOs back then. And because I knew the family uh, a little bit, they. They trusted me when I came and said, you know, I, I'm, I've been investigating UFOs uh, for a few years. This is in the 70s already. And, you know, I, I wanted to talk with somebody who had a really unique experience. So they allowed me into their home, uh, spent many, many uh, hours uh, with them uh, and uh, hearing the story. And they eventually uh, presented me with their a lot of the artifacts. I mean, uh, we, I have the a piece of the, the metal that was found, uh, the shirt <laughs> that he wore at the time that was burned, it's, uh, uh, and many of the documents that have never seen the light of day. Wow. And it, it also got you on the television show Unsolved Mysteries, which is, a, I guess, a badge of honor for you know, people in this world. <laughs> yeah, the original uh, Unsolved Mysteries with Robert Stack. Yeah, NBC flew us down uh, for the recreation uh, to their set, um, and uh, that was an experience uh, in itself. Uh, and in fact, in our book, we relate the story of what happened and how that what transpired. And in fact, the book is written from the perspective partly from uh, uh, the witness's son. His name's uh, 
Stan Mahalik and uh, 10-year-old or 11-year-old kid at the time. It was very, very amazing to see what was going on, and uh, and it really disrupted the entire family. It's how a UFO experience affects the witness and the witness's family. I mean, investigators um, followed uh, uh, the kids home from school. They uh, went to the place where uh, the witness worked, the RCMP uh, interrogated everybody and everything uh, to find out what was going on. Is there anything in this guy's background that, that suggests he was making it up? And, you know, eventually the RCMP and the Canadian forces both concluded that they had no explanation for the case. We'll get to the event now, and the whole thing really revolves around a single witness, being Stefan Mahalik or Stephen Mahalik. Tell me about Mahalik as he was when this happened back in 67. Like, what do you, what was going on in his life leading up to this? Well, uh, Stefan Mahalik uh, was uh, an immigrant from Eastern Europe, and uh, he'd been in uh, the military. Um, and when he came to Canada, eventually brought his family over. He was a bit of a rock hound. He took an interest in geology. And uh, when they moved into uh, into Manitoba, um, there's the Whiteshell Provincial Park, which is about an hour's drive away from Winnipeg, uh, part of the Canadian Shield. And there's some interesting minerals out there. In fact, uh, Mihalik, uh, like many people, had stake claims. Uh, there's uh, nice uh, quartz veins, and of course, where there's quartz, uh, there can be uh, other, you know, things like uh, silver and gold and and copper and. You know, and there actually is a gold mine uh, not all that far away. Uh, but uh, he had gone out on the May long weekend in 1957, uh, stayed overnight in, a, in, a, in the hotel in the town of Falcon Lake, uh, and uh, in the morning uh, tromped off into the bush uh, to see what he could find. Around noon, uh, he had stopped for lunch after being in the bush for a while, and his attention was drawn to something that was in the sky, uh, there were two what, what he described as, uh, as white uh, cigar-shaped objects. Um, and as one descended, uh, he noticed it wasn't actually cigar-shaped, it was disc-shaped. Uh, it was co- you know, changing color from white down to yellow to orange uh, to red. And eventually uh, he saw it was a silver in color, metallic. It seemed to land uh, not far from him, maybe uh, about uh, 150 uh, feet away. And he observed it for a while from crouching down in a in a bush. And this thing uh, was just, it had a dome on top, classic Hollywood-style flying saucer, uh, a little door opened in the side, and he could hear some squeaky voices, and he thought, oh, this must be some sort of American secret landing craft, because this is just about the beginning of Apollo and the moon landing. He figured maybe this is a, an uh, American test vehicle for the moon that went off course. And he approached the uh, uh, this thing, uh, and because uh, he, he thought it must have been American, because what else could it be? He actually never at one time thought in terms of little green guys. <laughs> he was thinking this is a physical craft, and he was familiar with with aircraft. Um, when he got to the side of it, he poked his head inside, saw uh, through a little door that had opened, um, saw some flashing lights, and uh, all of a sudden his hand was hot because he. He had leaned on the, the side of this thing. His rubberized glove had melted because the side of this thing was about 30, the saucer was 35 feet across, 12 feet high. Um, 
mask, and uh, uh, he had retreated back a few steps, which is good because this whole thing rotated so that there was kind of an exhaust, a grill of some kind in front of him, and out of this grill or exhaust came uh, a blast of hot gas, which um, set his clothes on fire, set fire, fire to some pine needles and leaves that were nearby, and the thing took off. And, um, you know, the story of... Uh, uh, of his cases is so fascinating. He eventually did make it back uh, to uh, Winnipeg where he was treated at a hospital. Uh, he was treated at emergency for first and second degree burns on his body. Um, and then the story started coming out. Uh, uh, it went to the media and uh, the RCMP came by, the uh, Canadian forces came by. And, you know, what's curious is that we have all this documentation. In fact, I sometimes argue that the Falcon Lake case is better than Roswell because even though it's a single witness case, we technically don't have any witnesses of Roswell, but uh, uh, we also have documents. We, the United States government says nothing happened in Roswell, but uh, the Canadian government, uh, in, on several fronts, uh, testifies that this is an actual case. Something happened. It was, we have uh, literally hundreds of uh, pages of documents uh, ranging from uh, RCMP uh, interview transcripts of uh, witness, uh, you know, people testifying about Mikhailak and Mikhailak uh, and him and his family as well. Um, we have uh, the uh, investigation details from the RCAF uh, in Ottawa, trying to decide what to do, and you know, we then we have the physical evidence that was examined as well. And mm-hmm. of the physical evidence, like I think the the injuries that Mahalik sustained in this event seem to be uh, among the most compelling because there's really like I've seen the photos that have been circulating where you see on his chest very clear kind of a circular circular kind of s- damage to his spots. skin basically spots in a sort yeah. of a grid pattern. Like, what, is there any explanation for the actual injuries? Like, is it a radiation burn or heat burn? Like, what was what was determined with that? Well, even though uh, a lot of talk has been going around over the years about this being a, a radiation case, um, the burns on his body were actually thermal. So there, there was a, whatever was in this gas or steam or whatever came out, out of this object was what burned him. Um, and uh, the, the pattern is very unique. It, it matches what he said was the, the, uh, the holes on the outside of this, this saucer. Um, he was, uh, as I mentioned, uh, examined by doctors at... Uh, uh, at the hospital, uh, he went back for additional tests. He went to the, uh, the CFB Winnipeg, uh, where he was examined by the uh, base doctor there. Uh, he went down to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, uh, where he was given a complete physical and examination down there, including a psychiatric examination. Um, and we have all of the medical records, the, uh, the medical reports from all the doctors, uh, and uh, it it's really quite remarkable that we have so much evidence that even, even the fact that he's a single witness to this case, the physical evidence alone is, is astounding. And we even do have some radiation connection to that. Uh, a year after the fact, he went back to the same site, uh, which again has been found precisely, and there's even GPS coordinates that we've, we've uh, been able to, to get now. Uh, but a year after the, this happened in 1968, he went back to the site and uh, because the uh, Canadian forces had discovered radioactive uh, patches uh, in the area, uh, he decided to dig into the rock area to, you know, to find out if there's anything in cracks 
and uh, he found uh, radioactive metal. Uh, this is a pure silver, almost pure silver that was radioactive, um, and he dug them out, uh, many, many pieces. We have only one piece uh, left now. Others have been lost by giving them to other investigators over the years. And this metal has been tested by many laboratories, uh, University of Chicago, uh, Arizona, uh, Manitoba. Uh, I think uh, Toronto might even have a, had a, a piece of it to test for a while. And uh, uh, it's definitely radioactive. In fact, we took it to a materials testing institute just last year um, and uh, you know, could verify that it was a chunk of almost pure silver um, that was somehow melted into a crack uh, within a rock. So, you know, there's enough evidence to suggest something really, really weird happened uh, in, uh, in Falcon Lake area in 1967. Uh, and who knows what it is. Uh, it, 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 uh, it, you know, people have said, well, this is clearly aliens that were, you know, looking for minerals of one sort or another, and uh, they're opening portals and this, that, and the other thing. But what we do know is that it's simply a mysterious event, and Mr. Mihalik himself never talked in terms of little green guys. He was convinced this was a, a physical craft of some sort, terrestrial, and went to his grave, uh, you know, saying, this is what happened to me. I'm not lying. His testimony never wavered over the decades. Um, and uh, he was just a, you know, a street-shooting kind of guy, and you know, if, uh, if people want to point to a case that seems to be indicative of something really weird that can't be explained, uh, this would be one of them. Like when we think of this event today, it's it's well known in the you know in the UFO community. But at the time, like Falcon Lake, the way I understand it, is a very kind of rural, low population area. How did the story spread so quickly? Like, what led to this weird event in this small town in Manitoba? What led to it? you know, being spread around the world as it is today? Well, as I mentioned, when he came, he had to travel from there. Uh, he actually went by Greyhound, I think, uh, by bus from Falcon Lake to uh, Winnipeg, where he was taken immediately to the hospital by his family. Um, and um, his concern, actually, was that he didn't want this happening to anyone else. So um, he had actually contacted uh, the Air Force first, and then he contacted the media, of course, this was a Saturday evening uh, into Sunday, and uh, there was really nobody around. So when he contacted uh, the newspaper, uh, somebody came out later that, that next day, um, and the story appeared. And because of the, the topic, you know, it was carried across Canada, uh, went into the United States. They started getting phone calls from uh, the BBC in England. Uh, you know, it really, uh, you know, attracted a lot of attention. And then over the years, from time to time, you know, Unsolved Mysteries, NBC was interested in them. Uh, it was featured and recreated on uh, A&E and one of their shows or a couple of their shows. Um, and, and, you know, it has all these elements. It's a very visual story. Um, but because it had never really been told in its entirety, um, there are a lot of misconceptions, like the fact that he was burned by radiation or there was some impurity in his blood or um, maybe he was... Uh, uh, hoaxing the whole thing, and you know he was had stolen radioactive material from a laboratory and was doing something nefarious. And you know, it, it, the fact that uh, the story was taking on a life of its own was one of the reasons why 
when I was speaking with the family one time, they suggested, well, let's tell the story once and for all and giving all the background. So we got together and we produced uh, the book when they appeared, um, told in actually four parts. Um, once uh, by the words of Stefan Mihalik himself, because back in 1968, the family was getting so tired of having people come by and he'd have to tell the story all, all over again. Um, uh, one of their friends said, well, let's, let's write it all down. So uh, Mr. Mihalik dictated um, uh, in his own language, uh, and somebody translated and published the thing in a little booklet form. Uh, they printed you know, several hundred copies, and this would give them out to people who wanted to know the story. They didn't make a single penny on, on the book. It, didn't, it wasn't out to make any money on this. In fact, they avoided publicity as much as possible. Um, but we've reprinted that as the first part of the book. Um, then um, Mr. Mahalik's son, Stan, uh, tells, the pers- tells the story from his perspective, what happened when Dad came home from the, from the bush that day, and uh, how the RCMP officers showed up at the door, and, uh, you know, tells the story in great detail. Then my own investigations, and I investigated the case uh, kind of as a, as a cold case back in the 70s, um, and then a reinvestigation that we conducted uh, trying to get more detail uh, in the uh, ensuing years. So, you know, it really is a, a detailed account of what we know about the case. We reprint many of the documents uh, that were found in the National Archives and others that uh, you know, we've discovered over the years from RCMP and RCAF. Um, so, you know, this is a, a case that is truly remarkable, and, uh, you know, it, it's part of Canadian um, history uh, to the point where the Canadian government actually um, commemorated it with a coin a few years ago, and um, there was, was actually a miniature, or not a miniature, but a, a, a small opera which was commissioned and uh, uh, performed uh, about this. Uh, it was called uh, Burns from Beyond. <laughs> uh, and there's a, a, you know, a move to try and get the site marked somehow in the way that Shag Harbor is, is marked now in Nova Scotia with some sort of sign and a, and a plaque or something along those lines. So there's uh, you know, quite a, uh, you know, a strong interest even to this day. In fact, uh, Falcon Lake is kind of turning into a bit of a shag harbor that, you know, the businesses sell UFO burgers and there's uh, some souvenirs and t-shirts and that type of thing. And uh, um, the site is actually fairly remote. It's about a a good hour-long horseback ride uh, into the bush. uh, And uh, there's a riding stable that will organize a ride, um, you know, with pack mules and so forth to get in there, uh, you know, for, for several hours. So, it's uh, it's turning into quite an interesting part of Acadiana. Mm-hmm. And one thing, like you mentioned, Shag Harbor there, and it's it's hard to escape some of the not so much the similarities with the individual or with the specific events, but just in the the way the stories are maintained. And one thing that I think is really unique is or really interesting about this is these two events, Shag Harbor and the Falcon Lake incident, they happened like a matter of months apart. What, what was going on in the world in 1967 that would lead to these two major UFO events occurring so close together? That's a very good question. As a matter of fact, one of my next projects that I'm working on now is a, uh, is a, is a book or a publication about 1967. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, they're just two of some really bizarre uh, cases that were occurring that year. 
Um, there was a case uh, in Canada uh, that same year where uh, uh, a young girl was seen being sucked up into the sky by a hovering object uh, and had to be pulled back down uh, by uh, some other witnesses. Um, there was a case out uh, out your way in the uh, in the Maritimes where a train engineer saw a UFO uh, fly over uh, the train as it was chugging along. Uh, there were cases out in Alberta where a photograph was taken. So there, there's some fascinating things that were going on from one end of the country, and it seemed all in 1967. And why 1967? I'm not sure, but uh, for some reason, uh, Canada seemed to have been under siege by the flying saucers. Mm-hmm. Now, with that, I'm going to ask a bit about your thoughts on um, on this event, but you have such a reputation for being like a, you know, a UFO investigator type, but also being really down to earth with your, with your opinions and your theories on these different uh, events. If what happened in Falcon Lake wasn't, you know, an alien spacecraft or whatnot, like what are some of the more compelling explanations that you've come across? Well, I mean, uh, Palmero Campania um, is convinced there was a, a sort of a, an updated version of the Avril car, you know, that, that, uh, that the discs were still under construction um, back then, and uh, this is something that the Americans were indeed flying around. Um, I don't know if I uh, buy that because you know we just simply don't have any uh, predecessor that was capable of doing this and, and uh, flying around immediately before, or immediately after. And I realize things get developed and prototyped and, sh- and shelved really quickly, but. Uh, with this type of technology, you'd see some more evidence of it. You know, mm-hmm. we, we wouldn't have we wouldn't have used a uh, 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 an Apollo rocket to, to get to the moon, for example. So, uh, I think you know, there's some ideas like that that are possible. Um, some, I mean, there, there's some debunkers who just say he made the whole thing up. It's uh, just one elaborate hoax. Uh, my argument there is it's so elaborate that the RCMP and the RCF both concluded that it had no explanation and. They certainly could have charged Mahalik with public mischief because literally uh, hundreds and hundreds of man hours were spent, um, you know, uh, by officers uh, uh, and in the military, uh, you know, investigating this case. Uh, and you'd think that uh, something would come of it eventually. If that was the instance. Um, but I, I think it's fair, simply fair to say we simply don't know. Um, and it, it's scientifically credible to say we just don't. You know, the data doesn't support one particular theory over another. Uh, it's certainly not enough to say that this definitely was a, an alien flying saucer, but it suggests that there was something very, very unusual uh, that occurred in, in the area near Falcon Lake uh, uh, in 1967. So I, I, I think it's part of the mystery and part of the lore, but it, it is one reason why so many people are fascinated by the subject, because there are a few cases like this that just make you scratch your head and shrug your shoulders and say, you know, I don't know, but boy, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. And I guess like the, some parts of it that are irrefutable are, of course, he was there and there's, you know, there's no argument about him going out there doing his prospecting for, for rock. There's no question that he had these severe burns because they were photographed and there's the medical documentation. And then, of course, the anomalous metals that were found. So no matter what those kind of three pieces of the story can't really be debated, I suppose. Yeah, and I would say that if it was a hoax, it's probably the best hoax 
that's been perpetrated. I mean, it certainly makes uh, Billy Meyer and George Adamski fade into the, the, the background. <laughs> yeah. Now, one other thing about um, about Stefan Mihalik or Mikalak, um, we you mentioned that he had at the time wrote like a short book describing his his the event, and I think a lot of people who consider you know the possibility that it was an elaborate hoax may think like yeah of course he wrote a book and was selling it but i think um like the when, when you call it a book that may even be exaggerating it like this was only like a 20 or 30 page thing if i'm if i'm not mistaken that he wrote like it was really just a him telling the story and writing yeah it was really a booklet <laughs> i suppose more than anything else uh and you know they only made a you know produced a box full at their own expense mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, they, they really didn't make any money on this uh, at all. Uh, in fact, the books, the little booklets are collector's items now. If someone has one, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's pretty rare. Wow. Now, to, to wrap it up here, so the, the event has happened. It has been, you know, in the Canadian consciousness of the, kind of the UFO world since 67. You, uh, it, you know, it had a, a, a big bump in the... I guess it was the early 90s with Unsolved Mysteries. The story got told again through your book. But now it seems like all of a sudden it's back in the news again thanks to your donation to the University of Manitoba. Tell me, like, I, I've read a bit of the articles, but I didn't want to dive too far into what's going on because I wanted to ask you about it. What? So just tell me, what is going on between you, your archive of UFO documents, and the University of Manitoba? Well, it, it's um, quite interesting that um, um, most people don't know that the University of Manitoba has quite a collection of, I guess, for in general terms, paranormal um, phenomena. They have funds of, um, uh, you know, in, people who are uh, really into ghost investigations and Fortean phenomena. Uh, Dan Aykroyd's father's collection is housed at... Uh, University of Manitoba. He was actually a, a paranormal investigator, really, um, and uh, and other people who have studied uh, unusual phenomena, ESP, and so forth. And along the way, they've also collected a small amount of UFO material. And I guess because of my reputation in the community, um, I had gotten to know some of the librarians and, and archivists. And one day, not that long ago, actually, within the past year, one of them came to me and said, "Well." you know, you must have quite a collection of, of UFO books and documents and reports. And I said, yeah, I do. And I said, well, what are you going to be doing with it eventually? And I had no idea. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, mean, I have all this material, but it, it was a good question. What am I going to do with all my UFO reports? And over the course of the past 30 years, or more than 30 years, the Canadian UFO survey alone, uh, I have more than 20,000 separate uh, UFO cases uh, in report form uh, from Canada just from Canada, and that's not to include the, the earlier cases. Plus, I have a uh, fairly modest library of several thousand books about UFOs and related phenomena, um, not to mention the many fanzines and ufozines uh, that I collected over the years, plus government documents, um, you know, and not only the stuff from uh, Archives Canada, um, but the material that I've also been uh, receiving over the years, uh, through Transport Canada, through uh, Canadian Forces, and so forth. Um, and they said, well, would you like to consider donating it to the university? And uh, I thought that was a pretty good idea. So we're actually um, in the process now of donating all of the UFO reports 
that have been collected uh, over the years uh, through the university archives. And as part of that, the Falcon Lake um, investigation case, uh, sorry, case investigations. Uh, so all the documents from the RCMP, the RCAF, uh, the letters, the correspondence, there are correspondences from politicians, uh, uh, some of the UFO groups, uh, APRO and NICAP and so forth, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, prominent figures in ufology, uh, and the doctor's reports and so forth, and the materials themselves. Uh, you know, the, the, the shirt that Mr. Mahalik was wearing at the time, uh, clearly showing the burns is, is part of the, the you know, library's collection. And the idea is to digitize the entire collection, especially the Falcon Lake material. Um, but to do that, the, the one caveat was that the university needed to, to find some additional funds for that. So they started a crowdfunding page uh, on, uh, on, the, uh, on their website uh, for people to donate uh, towards the crowdfunding campaign to digitize all this UFO material. And, you know, this is a great way for the average person to get involved in ufology, to contribute to UFO research, because, you know, the more that this material is available, uh, the more it benefits everyone who's interested in the subject. So, you know, so beyond uh, just the donations themselves, this is a way of continuing to respond to uh, ufology over the uh, over the course of the next coming decades. Now I'm going to end with this. You've spent a you know a good chunk of your life looking into Falcon Lake and other similar UFO events. Speaking specifically of Falcon Lake, do you think there's ever going to be an explanation for what Mahalik encountered that day? And if so, like what's going to have to happen to get you know the truth to come out? That's a very good question, and you know we had that discussion. Uh, uh, Stan Mahalik and myself, and he said he would like nothing better than one day uh, that he would get a letter from uh, the Minister of Defense saying, you know what, sorry about this, this actually was ours, and it was an accident, um, we apologize, uh, and, you know, that's the end of that. <laughs> you know, it would be nice for uh, the truth to, to come out, because uh, as many of the documents, I mean, we have hundreds of documents relating to just Falcon Lake, for example, uh, we suspect there's more, um, and you know somewhere out there there might be you know further analyses of uh, materials, and someone might know uh, of uh, you know some some little tidbit of information that we're lacking that might eventually solve this particular case. Um, you know it's it's only 52 years ago, so you know there could be uh, somebody around who has uh, the key to the mystery. I want to thank you for joining Chris and I in our discussion that surrounds the Falcon Lake UFO event. To me, there's no question that something unique happened to Mahalik in the forests of Falcon Lake. The photographs taken of his injuries make that clear. But what it was, be it extraterrestrial or otherwise, I'm afraid I haven't any ideas. But as I do consider the possible explanations, I can't help but come back to the fact that this all occurred only months prior to something crashing into the waters of Shag Harbor. If it was aliens, they sure have an interesting taste in travel destinations. And with that, we'll conclude this episode of Nighttime. But first, before we part, I want to end with some thanks. A huge thanks to Chris Witkowski for again joining me here on Nighttime and sharing some fascinating details. 
Chris, your contributions towards maintaining Canada's history with UFOs can't be overstated. We, and whoever's looking down at us from above, owe you a big thanks. And for listeners of the show who want more from Chris or want to learn more about the Falcon Lake UFO event, check out the episode notes. I've added links to Chris's book, When They Appeared, as well as links to the Unsolved Mystery episode that featured this event. For anyone else out there who wants more nighttime, please consider supporting my Patreon campaign. For about the price of a cup of coffee, you can access the premium feed which provides ad-free early releases of the episodes, as well as the Nightcap After Show, in which I and a guest climb even further down the rabbit holes than what you'll hear in the main feed. If you want to access the supporter-exclusive features, you can join at patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. And with that said, I want to thank the new members of the group. Caitlin, Elizabeth, and Abby, thank you for your generous support. And for anyone else who'd like to support the show but can't help financially, you can give me a big hand by telling your friends about me and leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts or whichever equivalent you use. If any of you listening want to stay up to date with my activities on or off the show, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I use the handle at NighttimePod. I'm also on YouTube now. And if you have any story ideas or want to give feedback on the show, I'd love to hear from you at nighttimepodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and contact me on social media and let me know what you think happened in Falcon Lake. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte. If people want to contribute to the crowdfunding, how do they do that? Uh, the site to go to uh, for the crowdfunding campaign to digitize the UFO material is um, uh, give.umanitoba.ca slash UFO files. And uh, that will take you to the, uh, the crowdfunding site. <laughs>